It seems these days everybody is homeschooling. But believe it or not, there was a time before the whole population started homeschooling. There was a small group of people who chose to homeschool their children long before the lockdowns forced us all to do it. In fact, my parents were some of those people. I grew up as a homeschooler. And one thing I know is that while not all homeschool families are the same, there is one thing that they almost all have in common, and that is a love of books. It's not uncommon to find homeschool families with thousands of books. I'm not talking a bookshelf full of books. I'm talking about a room of bookshelves full of books. Growing up, my mom had a whole room of the house dedicated to books and bookshelves, and now it is two rooms of the house. Uh, Even though she's no longer homeschooling, her book-buying habit has not gone away. So whether you're writing paperbacks, audio, digital, homeschool families buy a lot of books. Why? Because they use them to help educate their children. Uh, Homeschool moms often budget a significant portion of their education budget just for purchasing books. If you are an author, this is a target-rich environment. But you may be wondering, where are these readers? How do I reach them? How do I tap into this market? How do I write the kinds of books they would want to buy? Well, that is what we're going to talk about in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. This is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and change the world with writing worth talking about. I'm your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr., and today we are joined by USA Today best-selling author and homeschool mom who's written 70 books while feeding and teaching her 10 children. Trisha Goyer, welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thank you, Thomas. And you are exactly right. I was trying to count in my head how many bookshelves I have in my house. It's probably about 15 bookshelves <laughs> filled with books. And then there's the garage, um, which I've had to you know, run out of rooms. So we have boxes and crates of more books. I was looking for books the other day and went through three bins in the garage and still didn't find the one I, I was looking for. Lots of books everywhere in my house. Ikea needs to have a homeschool mom special where you buy your uh, bookshelves three at a time and get a discount. It is so true. We have so many bookshelves around here, but we'd go through a lot of books too. So, you know, it's justified. So you would think that selling books to homeschoolers is easy, right? They've got this big budget for buying books. They uh, need to own a lot of books because often they don't have the same kind of access to a a library. Like a lot of schools will have one library for 100 or 500 students all share the same library, whereas a homeschool family basically creates their own library and it's shared between five or 10 children. And yet selling to homeschoolers seems to be this like mythical, difficult challenge. And for a lot of authors, they have no penetration into the homeschool market. So so illuminate that for us. Why is the homeschool world so separated? Why is it so hard to reach? You know, I think a couple things. First of all, the homeschool world, a lot of them are very conservative. And so they're looking for a specific type of book. And but the good news is if you have the type of book that they're looking for, they're going to buy everything you have. And so it's really finding a way to connect with them, um, whether it's on online groups or conferences, and we could talk about all these things. But they kind of are in their own little groups, their own little huddles, but they do share when they find something they love. And they love telling other people about it. And they love buying every book by their favorite authors, but it does really take getting to know where they're at and how you can connect with them to get your books into their hands. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about literary fiction. We talked about how the golden chalice for literary fiction 
is being, you know, required reading in school. And there's a big conference for English teachers. And there's a big, you know, catalog that comes along with this conference, like a phone book of books. And all these authors are competing. And uh, you would think, oh, if I can get into that catalog, if I can get popular with public school teachers, that will help me with homeschool teachers. <laughs> and it's like, no, it's actually the opposite. There is a lot of distrust. And I don't feel like they're still at war. But when I was a kid uh, going through, there was a lot of animosity. We felt persecuted. We we hid from the police because uh, homeschooling was only pseudo legal. And a lot of uh, police officers or you know garbage collectors or mailmen didn't know what the laws were. And they'd call the truant officer and sometimes would have children pulled out of their parents' homes because they're homeschooling. And so the fact that a book is, you know, endorsed by public school teachers is actually a mark against you in the homeschool market. And so let's talk about conferences first, because while there's the one big conference in the public school world, I'm sure there's other conferences, but there's the one main one. uh, That's not how it is with um, homeschooling. Homeschooling tends to be more regional. So, So walk us through what that looks like. Yeah, it's very regional. And there's some big organizations, Teach Them Diligently has, I think they're in six different states. Um, The Great Homeschool Conventions are another one. So there's a couple organizations that will span multiple states, but most states have their own state convention. So if you just put whatever state you're in and put in state convention, it'll pop up. Now, you know, before the pandemic um, and we stopped doing these, which we're hoping to do them again this year. In fact, I'm booked for four conferences this year, so we'll see if they actually happen. But these are very large conventions. The one in Florida that I was supposed to speak at last year, hopefully be there this year has they said between eight and ten thousand families now that's not eight to ten thousand people that's eight to ten thousand families and, and florida is one that will draw people from all over because you know go to florida go to the convention go to disney world and you kind of make a fun trip out of it but whether it's a, a teach them diligently or a state convention there's a lot of families and they come with the purpose to buy books and so they will have speakers and I've spoken at many of these conferences and so the speakers will speak on homeschooling but they'll even speak on you can speak on how to write a novel you can speak on you know exercise for your children I mean different topics so it just doesn't have to be about homeschooling but then the speakers also have tables or you can also get a vendor table. And so these are set up in a huge convention hall and where in a lot of book industries, a lot of those big conventions aren't happening anymore. They're still happening in the homeschool market. And so I will get a booth. I'll have a couple tables. I have uh, at least one assistant with me and we are pretty much busy the whole time because people are walking through. They want to make sure they hit every table. They want to know about the books and often, you know, it's a three day thing. So usually Friday, Saturday, they're kind of looking and then Sunday they're like okay they figure out what they want to buy and they will go back and they will connect and buy and and so really it is important to have a presence at those conferences and so I found um, even before I started speaking just the prices of a vendor table usually pay off first of all you get your initial customers but then they're also loyal customers so they are ones you can put on your email list and then you can continue to connect with them through the year and then the next year they'll come back and so I've had you know the first year someone will buy a book just to kind of check me out the next year they come and buy five books and the next year they come and say my child loves your books your favorite author uh, you know and then they'll want to buy more books and so once you can get connected with them they really are very faithful readers and I just want to point out something you said you're selling books so fast you need an assistant at your book table to help you take transactions and absolutely (laughs) so 
in most of the world, trade shows don't work anymore, or they don't work very well. Even before the pandemic, trade shows were becoming less and less of a valuable marketing strategy because people weren't coming to the trade show to make purchases. They would come to your table, they'd look at some things, and then they would go on Amazon and buy it from them instead. And so you ended up just showrooming for Amazon, depending on your industry. That is not the case in homeschooling. In homeschooling, the big convention is often the main social event of the year. It's a big social deal. My wife's parent, my wife is also homeschooled, and her father ran the main homeschool conference here in in Austin or helped run it. And I will say one strategy that you use, and this is a really solid strategy, is speaking at the conference helps bring people to your table because there's a big show floor. You're not going to be the only author there. If you're able to pick a topic that will resonate with the homeschool market, you probably, if you're totally new, you're probably not going to be able to do it through your first year there. But after a time or two coming to a homeschool convention, you'll start to kind of learn the vernacular. You'll learn the people. You learn that they're expecting very modest clothing, right? Don't wear yes. anything super <laughs> edgy or or uh, too trendy. And the other thing is that with the exclusion of some of those groups that you mentioned, a lot of homeschooling is really regional. And being popular in one region doesn't necessarily make you popular in the nearby region. There, I think there's more exchange now than there was when I was a kid, but gosh, when I was a kid, there was almost no contact between the regions. <laughs> so you'd have a lot of regional differences. And one uh, pro tip that I learned while I, cause I used to sell at homeschool conventions. In fact, my first business before I started working with authors was an audiobook business for homeschoolers. We made homeschool audiobooks and we sold them at uh, homeschool conferences, which is actually where I first met my wife. <laughs> oh, that's so <laughs> we cool. Were both, we were both really young uh, and, you know, we were way too young to pursue anything but you know we both remembered meeting each other at that conference years later when we met for real but one of the things i learned at that conference was that alaska's conference is actually one of the best conferences to Mm -hmm. go to yes because alaska is one of the few states that subsidizes homeschooling Uh, because alaska is so big uh, there are places in alaska where it doesn't really make sense to have a school right because Alaska is like so big, you can't even wrap your mind around it. It's like planetary sizes big. And I'm saying this as somebody from Texas, which is really big. <laughs> yeah. So, but what the reality is, is that they get money from the state. Each parent gets money from the state to spend on curriculum. And so they're walking into that convention with money in their pocket that if they don't use it, they lose it. So mm-hmm. you can send, sell a lot of books at the Alaska uh, convention. So what are some tips that you have for having a good booth at a homeschool book fair? You want to make it so they don't have to walk into your booth for one. They like to be able to approach. And so we have a table set up front with all the books set out so they can see it without feeling like you're going to jump on them. (laughs) I mean, if they have to walk in somewhere, then they're making a commitment. They're they're just getting to know you and they're not making a commitment. So I'll usually have books, all the books that I have on little racks and so they can see the covers. I'll have little signs if I have a special going on. I have been amazed. I also put a, a mailing list out there and it's just, I found the best thing is just to do a simple sign up, just has their um, name and email. And this is for the newsletter. And, you know, we will do a $50 gift certificate at the end of the conference. But I would say 90% of them, when I say, would you like to sign up for my newsletter? 90% of them will say yes. Because they want to get to know you, they want to know more about you, and a newsletter is a great way, an email newsletter is a great way for them to do that. I will also often put a stack of books, like um, kind of like a little tower of books, a little circle of books, again, and things that they could pick up, that they could touch. So make it visually appealing and 
communicate with them as soon as they come up. You know, how are you doing? Oh, your kids are adorable. What grades do you have? Would you like to sign up for my newsletter? And I found that once you start the interaction, they love getting to know you. They love talking. It's not like, don't talk to me. Um, I don't want to look at you. They want to know who you are and what you do. Now, one thing that I did my very first convention, because I was just, even though I'd been homeschooling for 20 years at this point, I was just starting to speak and go to conventions. I ended up getting um, a very discounted rate from one of my publishers from one of my books that was going out of print. So I got these books for maybe a dollar a piece. I gave everyone who came by a free one of my novels. And that was a great thing because then they came back even the next day and said, my child was up all night reading your book and they love your book and they told me to go buy more of your books. But once you get one of your books into their hands, or even if you could do like a short piece that you have printed up or something, the first chapter, anytime you get something into their hands that they could look at and the kids can read or get interested in, that is a huge thing because the kids are there too. You often see kids sitting in the halls with piles of books reading and because if the parents are readers and reading is promoted in their house the kids are readers too and so getting them getting their kids excited about the books you can guarantee the parents are going to be back there buying more books from you yeah that's probably one i haven't been to a public school uh, teacher convention or book fair but i imagine that's one of the differences at a homeschool convention it's not uncommon for the children to outnumber the adults in the room oh in my workshops there'll be parents and you know at least as many kids or double the number of kids, but they're on the floors, they're in the aisles, there's kids everywhere and they have books, they're reading and often the kids will come up and want their pictures taken with me because I'm an author. The kids will uh, you know, walk up and ask me, how do you write a book? And so I often do workshops um, for people to come in and learn about writing because they want to connect with authors where, you know, when you're at a, maybe a book convention, those bookstore owners, they see authors day and night. <laughs> Author isn't really a special <laughs> thing. But a homeschool conference, they're like, wow, you wrote this book? How did you write it? I tell them about my research. I tell them about World War II veterans I met. I tell, you know, whatever. They will ask all kinds of questions. And homeschoolers are curious. They want to know about everything. So I'll have little 14-year-olds come and say, did you get to see this plane? What was it like to be inside a bomber? Or what did the veterans say? And I will have a conversation with a 14-year-old for 15 minutes because he's interested in the history. So they're curious. They love reading. They love books. And so any way you can engage. The worst thing I see is when I see someone sitting back to the side. They're not standing. They're not talking about their books. They're just waiting for people to ask them questions. If you're not, hello, how are you doing? Let me tell you about my book. Or trying to engage with them, they're not going to kind of engage with you. So I've seen those vendors that are just sitting there back in the corner, almost scared of the homeschoolers. Don't do that. Really, they're nice people and they want to engage with you. Yeah, that that's one of, I would say, the top tips for working any kind of convention, mm-hmm. homeschool conventions especially. Take the chairs, the two chairs that came with your booth, pick them up and take them to the side of the convention hall and leave them there. <laughs> those are not for you to sit in. As soon as you start sitting, people will just walk uh, right on by. And Trisha, one thing I think that's really good about your strategy of giving away a sample book is that homeschool parents are really cautious. It's it's they very are. common for a homeschool parent to read a book mm-hmm. first before they have their child read the book. And so it's expensive to buy a book, read it, and then decide, I don't want my kid to read this because it's got magic in it, or it's got dating in it, or these characters kiss each other, and uh, I don't want my children reading about that, right? These are the, this is the audience. It's not exclusively the audience, but these are the sorts of things that conservative homeschoolers are, are reading your book, checking for, right? These are the kinds of people who don't like Harry Potter. <laughs> right. And, and that may be really hard to understand, like, 
Who wouldn't like Harry Potter? Everyone likes Harry Potter. The homeschool parents that buy thousands of books don't like Harry Potter, or a lot of them don't. And the ones who don't like Harry Potter all talk to each other. And so if you can get your book into the hands of a handful of those parents and they are like, Trisha Goyer is an approved author. We like what she has. She doesn't have any bad content in her books. Uh, Then it makes it a lot easier for new parents who are like, I heard good things about you. I want to buy your books. And that leads to more and more sales. So a little bit of generosity on the front end can help people get over that suspicion gap. Yeah. And I will tell them, um, my books are clean. There's no cursing. There's no people sleeping with each other. Um, and even like I have Amish books, which is they're sort of romance. They're, I say there's a relationship with, with God in these just as much as there's a relationship between the boy and the girl. And they usually get one kiss at the end. And the parents are like, okay, we can, <laughs> we can handle that. Um, but I did take a friend's books. She writes teen books with boy and girl kind of romancy things. I She's a very well-known very best-selling author. I could not sell one book because they said, do these teens date in this book? And I said, yes. And no one, no one bought that book. So uh, you do really do have to know the type of parents. But once they, again, once you're on their approved list, they love you. They love your books. They will tell their friends about you. They will bring their friends over. They will have your friends meet you. So they are very conservative. But once you get them on your team, they're going to be your biggest cheerleaders also. You should take my book, Courtship in Crisis, and sell it at the at your booth the year before and then bring in the, oh, yeah. the, sell, <laughs> sell the book go. with dating. Although the kind of dating, I, anyway. But we won't go into the dating uh, relationships, but I will say <laughs> that is one big cultural difference mm-hmm. is that in the homeschool community, the uh, social norms regarding romantic relationships are very different than anything that has ever existed before. It's not traditional. It's just new and it's different. And I wrote a whole book about it. And if you're curious, you can find the book on Amazon. I've got a whole history of how it happened and how it emerged. It's it's a very fascinating subculture. And one of the things you have to realize is that there's kind of two groups of homeschoolers. There's the folks who homeschool because it's convenient or there's a pandemic. And then there's another group where homeschooling is a subculture. It's almost like an ethnic group, but without a blood connection. But it's uh, it's like a ethnic group in almost every other sense, right? Even unique foods, unique diets, unique clothing, unique music, unique books. It's a subculture. It's a full-blown subculture and one that doesn't get any coverage really in the media. And there's no real understanding. It's not even bias coverage. It's just no coverage. Like <laughs> yeah. You have no idea that this whole other world exists because it's not covered, which makes it really fun to sell to because it's so different and new, but it also makes it a challenge. So let's talk a little bit more about what the homeschoolers are looking for in their books and what they're not looking for in their books. Um, with my historical novels, they love when I tell them that they're historically accurate because they feel good when they could turn it over to their kid, their child's studying about World War II. They know when they're reading my novel that I say, if a bomb fell in my novel, it really fell in that place. I'm not making up stuff. Your student will learn about these things. They'll learn what, about what it was being like inside a bomber because I interviewed a veteran and he told me about what it was like inside a bomber. So they do want it to be historically accurate. Um, they love series is another thing that homeschoolers love. They love when they their child gets 
into characters. They could follow the series along. Anything that you can, if you're handing them a novel or a collection of stories or anything that they can hand to their student, hand to their child, that they don't have a lot of work involved is great for them. But again, clean, no cussing, drinking, (laughs) sexual activity, any of those types of things, they're not going to want in their fiction. Things that do really well, uh, Chuck Black is an author that is often at conventions with me. He writes medieval series, which he always has a huge line. He makes, he gets swords and has them for sale there. So like they like any type of products that go with the books. And so like he will have his swords. I think he has a, a board game that he did that went along with his books because all of a sudden you have the kids, they're reading all these books and now they're going to buy the sword or they're going to buy the board game to go with it. So they like those types types of products. When I was a homeschool boy or homeschool high schooler, I think I bought a dozen swords. Yeah. Maybe oh. more. <laughs> I was too young to buy guns, so I bought swords instead. Every convention, my kids are coming home. We buy the gun. We have rubber band guns we get at conventions. I mean, those types of things you can have also because they're going to play with those things. Again, you have kids running around. They're checking out the tables. They're bringing their parents over. We'll often have like stickers that we get away with kids, candy on the table that we give it away, like any of these things that will get them pulled in and get connected. Now, but also, homeschool parents often like to read themselves. So you can say, you know, maybe this might not be a book that you won't want to, you know, have your 11 year old read, but an older teen or a mystery, if you like mysteries, you would like this book. So they're also looking for books for themselves too, not only their kids, because again, they're usually readers, their kids are readers. And so you're kind of catering to the whole family. So if you're saying, well, I don't write books for kids, you can definitely reach adults at the conventions if you have clean fiction that they think that's something that they will enjoy reading. And homeschoolers often read four or five grade levels above their actual grade level. And Absolutely. So it's, it's not uncommon for once a homeschooler turns 12 or 13, they're reading adult level books. And in fact, a lot of homeschool parents don't want kind of quote dumbed down young adult books, not because of any objectionable content, but because, you know, the writing isn't complex enough. (laughs) And and you may be like, that's not true. I'm like, these are homeschool parents who are buying Victorian books that have not been adapted or abridged. (laughs) That was my whole business back when I was selling audiobooks at uh, homeschool conventions. We were taking stuff that was no longer copyrighted and repurposing it. Okay, so everything was older than 1924. And a lot of it was a lot older than 1924. And they're reading that. They're reading these really dense tomes. And so don't. So you may be like, well, I don't write for children. It's like you may not write for normal children, but homeschool children may flock to your book if you can find kind of one of the two ends. And uh, Tricia, you alluded to one of these, and that is educational, right? What's the mm-hmm. educational angle? Anything historical, the more you can lean in on that educational angle is a way into the community. And, and you don't need to necessarily be religiously affiliated to do that. If the educational appeal is strong enough, that's enough. The other way in that I've seen authors take is the uh, religious angle where they uh, have Christian books. And I see this particularly well with Christian fantasy and science fiction. Mm -hmm. Christian speculative fiction uh, doesn't sell well in the general market. A lot of authors really have a hard time finding audiences, but the ones that go to homeschool conventions often have a line down the hall. (laughs) They're very, very popular because homeschool parents are looking for those kinds of exciting books. Their their sons and their daughters as well are looking for those kinds of books. And the Christian ones give that appeal. 
and they're really popular. And so I would say, you know, if you're a Christian, it's okay, and you lean into that in your writing. You know, some people are like, I'm a Christian who writes. I don't write Christian books. Well, homeschoolers are looking for Christian books. <laughs> they're looking for more explicitly Christian books, uh, or at least books from a Christian worldview. And that is kind of the other way in, I would say. Yes, and we read because I use a curriculum that is literature-based. I am reading out loud to my kids, like you said, classic books that, I mean, most high schools don't read the books that I'm reading aloud to my third and fourth grader. And we're used to the vocabulary. We're used to the kind of complicated storylines because our kids are either whether reading out loud or they're listening to audiobooks or they're reading those books themselves. So they can be at a higher level than books... Uh, if you had books that were, you know, about kids fighting or whatever, I mean, I don't know, little kids type of nerd books or geek books, or I don't know, the titles that are out there, those types of books won't sell as well, because they don't want to give their kids books about um, other kids picking on each other. And <laughs> I don't know, I don't know explain it. There's a there's a moral thing going on, too. And we don't want just simple little stories that are like first or second grade reading level, we want more complex stories for our kids. So there's a couple of things here I think are really important. And so one thing that you're talking about is a big difference I've noticed. In the general market, there's a real push towards relatable, flawed protagonists. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In the homeschool market, there's a real demand for role models, kind of ideal protagonists. You just explained that like exactly what I couldn't figure out how to say, Thomas. Exactly. Yes. And that is like a fundamental difference, right? One is meant to be a realistic, believable person. The other one is meant to be an ideal to which you aspire. And mm -hmm. you find both in classical fiction. You bo find both in great fiction, I would say. But one sells a lot better in the homeschool market. And the, the other thing that you talked about, and this is, I think non-homeschoolers do this too, but I think homeschoolers do it more. And that's reading aloud as a family. I, yes. I think growing up, my family may have read 100 books aloud growing up. So over, you know, my from age five to age 15, we read probably about 10 books uh, a year aloud as a family, maybe about a book a month. Now, we read some books over and over again. We did the Chronicles of Narnia every five years. Oh, yeah. We, <laughs> I think we've done that like four or five times, the Chronicles of Narnia. And so that's another kind of thing to think about. And if you're writing for the homeschool market, a really good exercise to do while you're writing your book is read it out loud because your book won't just be read aloud by a professional audiobook narrator, and hopefully you're going to have a professional audiobook narrator, but it may be read aloud by a parent who's really tired and is reading it for the first time. <laughs> and so the better your writing is, the cleaner your sentences are, the easier it is to read out loud, the more the kids will ask for one more chapter, one more chapter, and then one more book, and suddenly they've bought your whole series of 20 books. I have a good example of that. Um, Andrew Peterson, who's also the musician, has this Wing Feather series, and he started reading them out loud on Facebook. And so my kids and I started tuning in, listening to Andrew Peterson read his, and they're kind of a fantasy, kind of a Chronicles of Narnia type on Facebook. Well, then I ended up buying the series. And so it could only be on Facebook so long. And so then I bought the audiobooks. And then I bought the series for my grandson because my kids like the series. And so just by him getting on, reading a chapter out loud to his audience on Facebook, that video spread. I think it was like the first ones were viewed like 17,000 times. And then all those people ended up buying the books. I bought multiple copies, audio copies because he took the time to read it out loud. So that's another way to reach them. But yeah, readability and something that the whole family 
can be interested in is a huge thing because we do we read I read aloud at least two or three books during the school day and then at nighttime when they go to bed I read out loud again so we're reading a lot of books during the day yeah my two-year-old is already on to short chapter books like chapter picture books yeah and she would have us read aloud to her all day long if we could do it so happy to hand her off to grandparents because they're happy to read to her for hours and hours (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I guess one way to summarize it is that it's a very book culture so it's not a tv culture and it's not a movie culture right the the joke is that homeschoolers don't know about the latest tv shows and the movies I, I think they're a little more connected nowadays than they used to be but like growing up we only had a tv half the time and we were not watching stuff that everybody else was watching and we were reading books and we were listening to adventures and odyssey and it was just a really different culture <laughs> and, or even gaming culture so we don't have a gaming system in our house i have 10 children we do not have a gaming system. People were like, what are you talking about? Well, they have tablets. They have some games um, that they can play on their tablets, but we don't have a game. We only have one television. Yeah, so it is a very different culture. My kids spend way more time listening to me read out loud than they do on phones or tablets or th- that sort of television, those types of things. Yeah. And again, there's a broad variety of homeschooling. So, so when we're saying homeschoolers, this isn't all homeschoolers. But what happens is that if you're able to capture that most conservative part of the market, you end up getting the rest of the market for free. Absolutely. And I think in different parts of the country, it's even like Ohio, I could see the difference in how even they dress. Where I'm, If I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, some of these homeschoolers have tattoos and like piercings and they're more the hip, cool homeschoolers. But even those homeschoolers are still looking for the more conservative books, even though they might have a tattoo or they might have a nose piercing or they might have purple hair. They still want to know, is this okay for my child to read? Yeah. And there's, you can make a really good living writing for this audience. And it may be that you write books specifically for this audience kind of in its own line. There was an author I knew here in town who wrote just, you know, general YA books, but then he did a whole series of books specifically for the homeschool market. And this was way back in the day before it was cool to do that sort of thing, but it ended up being very savvy uh, marketing, very savvy positioning. And he wrote book after book. And these are traditionally uh, published books with a traditional publisher. Now, one last thing we should talk about before we go is because we've been talking a lot about fiction and a lot of what we're talking about also applies to nonfiction in some ways. You know, I feel like nonfiction sells more to the homeschool parents. But, you know, if it's the right educational nonfiction, perhaps it goes down to the children. But let's talk briefly about curriculum because that's the other kind of golden chalice, (laughs) right? And uh, that's something you've dabbled in as well. So talk to us about can you adapt curriculum from your books? Like what's the strategy there? Absolutely. So I have a book called Prayers That Change History that we're getting ready to launch the curriculum for. So it's like 25 different people in history that prayed. And so we are doing each chapter where it has the um, a science, something from that time period in science. It has a, something in literature that was happening during that time. It has maybe, if we're talking about Helen Keller, it might be when Braille was invented. So you take one little subject and then you expand on it. And it's called a unit study. So I'm also doing that for my World War II novels. So I can talk about this is where the bombers were built. So this is what maps look like during this time and how they're able to use stars for navigation. I mean, anything that you talk about in a novel can be pulled out for a unit study. Also, um, those are like big things, but you can do smaller things for your books for like holidays or something. And then 
blogs, again, are still good for homeschoolers. They're still reading blogs if you can give them information, how-to information. So, for example, Veterans Day, I always talk about my World War II novels. I will pull out what was what rationing was like in World War II. I have a printable for them to print up and they has information about my book, but they could have a recipe of this is things that they would have made. And so anytime that you can take a subject and then whatever topic your book is on and kind of expand on it, whether it's in science or writing or, you know, you could give journal prompts or um, act, a craft for them to do. Homeschool parents love that. And you can either package those together, sell them if you're at a conference, if you have them on your website, or if you have free printables, they will come, they will print those things, they will find out about your books, and they will buy your books. So anything that you can help them make teaching fun. And this is another thing too, I think a lot of parents, it's not just about we're not teaching to a test, we're teaching for our kids to love to learn, to enjoy things. So we're not most of us during the day just filling out worksheets or doing fill in the blank activities, we are kind of taking what we're learning and applying it to life. So anytime you can do that with your books, you can really draw in that market. So in some ways, it's kind of like creating small group resources for a discussion group, but tailored towards a homeschool mom, you know, doing a unit study around your book. Yeah, and you could do a prayer journals, you could do writing journals, you could do, I mean, anything that they can print up and use during that day in that homeschool, they are going to love you forever for bringing that and providing that for them. That's great. Another thing to do is get to know the other vendors at the conference, especially the other vendors who are running their own curriculums. In mm -hmm. fact, I think a very shrewd investment is to make sure to bring enough books to give away so that everyone who has decision-making power over a curriculum is going away from that conference with a free copy of your book. Absolutely. It's a lottery ticket. But if a curriculum picks your book as required or recommended reading, that could be tens of thousands of sales every year. <laughs> Yeah. And really, when you get to know the vendors, we support each other. So even offline, we might come together and do a giveaway. I did an Instagram giveaway with three other homeschoolers. And we had, you know, all these people sign up for our Instagram and, and you know, find out more information about our book. We will I will share other people's um, books or information on my newsletter list. I've had people share their my information on their list. There's also some online groups that parents are going to. So one I wanted to mention was it's called Top Picks Homeschool Curriculum Fair. And you can pay to be a vendor on that site. And there's I think last time I looked, 13,000 homeschool families signed up on there. Um, and you can share about your books. I would do giveaways. And it's very inexpensive. I think it's about $150 a month for me to be a vendor on there. And you get certain slots where you can do giveaways and stuff. And I'll, I will get a lot of sales through my online store from me just sharing about my book or the story behind my book or giving away a book, you know, I give away one free book, I might get 25 orders from that one little post on that curriculum site. So start, you know, looking around and there are tons of online groups. We talked about conferences. They're also congregating online, but most of the time they don't want you to be pushy selling. They want you to be helpful and informative and really know what they're going through and give them advice instead of just like, here's my books, buy it. You know, they will get tired of that quickly. 
And that's not special to homeschoolers. That's literally everyone yes. on the internet. <laughs> no one on the internet's like, you know what I really want? I want you to sell really hard, push your stuff really hard, and in a way that's of no value for the people who are oh, buying yeah. your stuff. It, that doesn't work anywhere. Um, so for somebody who is, let's talk real practicals. We're almost out of time. So I would say one thing to do for sure is Google you know, homeschool book fair and then put in your city. Because there's often uh, city ones or town ones that are uh, really easy to attend and just buy a ticket. Don't even get a booth. Just get a ticket. Sit in on the sessions and talk to people, especially if this is a foreign world for you. If you have just been like blown away that this world exists. And I should say, <laughs> when we're, we're talking homeschoolers, this isn't a small group of people. It's three million plus noses, I believe. it. Maybe I'm sure it's way more now with COVID. But back in the day, it was there's... Oh, yeah. I think it's like up 60% just because of COVID. Yeah. So, you know, we're looking at 5 million, yeah. you know, give or take, assuming that 3 million it grew since when I was younger. So this is a big audience of a lot of book readers, and it, it doesn't interact much. And so you're going to have to learn the language. You have to learn the vernacular. It's just like going to another country, except it's English. So other than, you know, starting to attend some of the local book fairs, and, and you may be like, I live in the middle of nowhere. There's not going to be a book fair here. Actually, you know who also lives in the middle of nowhere? Homeschoolers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you look at the geographic distribution of homeschoolers, they don't live in urban centers as a general rule. Some of them do, but they tend to be more densely populated in the suburban areas of town, but in terms of ratios, even higher in the rural parts of town. Because if you're 20 minutes away from your school, 30 minutes away from your school, there's a real, or if you're in Alaska, you know, two-hour, you know, trek to school there's a real convenience to homeschooling that it becomes an additional incentive in addition to all the other incentives so that's the first thing what else would you recommend trisha for somebody who's wanting to get to know this market better um start listening to homeschool podcasts there are a ton of homeschool podcasts and there's some that you know talk about homeschooling or curriculum read out loud revival is a great one for if you like books to read out loud every time she has someone on and she's talking about their book and their author and when you see someone come on read out loud revival as a guest their amazon numbers will go crazy and they'll be the bestseller in that section because all of a sudden you have like tens of thousands of listeners saying oh that would be a perfect book for my family and i know a lot of these radio shows do have advertising so if you start listening to homeschool podcasts you can just you know buy a 30 second 60 second slot for their podcast and then again you have to know the market. You have to know how, what to say to reach them. But homeschool podcasts or YouTube channels, YouTube shows, any of those types of things already are connecting with that audience. And if someone is going to promote you or interview you, they will trust that person. And I should mention while we're talking about podcast episodes, I have two other podcast episodes on the homeschool market on my other podcast. One is a Christian's author's guide to the homeschool market. And this is a podcast episode that I worked on longer than any other podcast in my entire life. I started the outline for this five years ago. <laughs> Basically, oh, wow. a history of homeschooling. It talks about the different subcultures inside of homeschooling. We've been talking real broad brushes mm -hmm. here. But in that episode, I break out you know the difference between secular homeschoolers and academic homeschoolers and fundamentalist homeschoolers and hippie homeschoolers. These are all different groups of homeschoolers with their own things that they look at. 
It was the first thing my wife ever edited for me <laughs> back before we were even dating. It's a really great episode if you want to, need to understand homeschool culture better. And it's I've gotten a lot of really interesting feedback from that on homeschool. It's like, I had no idea. And people inside the movement. And then the other episode I have, and I'll have links to both of these at authormedia.com. What authors must know about homeschoolers before trying to sell them books. <laughs> so another really good introductory episode. And then I also want to recommend, Trisha, you have a collection of homeschool resources. Tell us about those. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you just, my website's trishagoyer.com. And if you just go on there and, and put homeschool in the search, I mean, I probably have hundreds of blog posts that have free printables and how to homeschool well and, you know, books to read. So any of those type homeschoolers are always, again, looking for that information, but you could just go there and see, okay, I see how she's doing these freebies. I see how she's doing these printables and, you know, get some examples and create stuff to go with your books from the things that I'm doing. But yeah, I have dozens and dozens and dozens of printables and freebies and tips for homeschoolers. And again, they are on Pinterest putting in St. Patrick's Day or Fourth of July activities. They're always looking for those types of things. You know, there is a path to the USA to bestseller list that runs through the homeschool market. And a lot of people think, oh, the only way to become a USA Today bestseller, a New York Times bestseller, is to go through the mainstream market. And while that's more true with the New York Times because they give extra weight to certain bookstores in New York City where there's not a high density of homeschoolers, there's homeschoolers in New York City for sure, but it's not as dense as, you know, really any other place, probably. And so it's harder to get the New York Times, but there is a way to the USA Today bestseller list because homeschoolers, their money spends just as well as anybody yeah. else's. <laughs> and you may have a bias against homeschoolers, but you don't have to have a bias against homeschoolers' money. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Uh, you have been listening to Thomas Umstead Jr. and Trisha Goyer on the Novel Marketing Podcast. Our sponsor today is the Novel Marketing Patreon. When you go to a movie, you have to pay for the movie before you find out if you like the movie. The same with the book. You pay for the book before you find out whether you like the book or not. Not so with this podcast. You can choose whether or not you want to pay for the Novel Marketing Podcast. If you find these episodes valuable, if you find them helpful, you can pay what you want to help keep the show coming every week to help with production, to help offset all of the costs of putting on this podcast. And not only do you get the warm feeling of knowing that you're keeping novel marketing on the air, but you also get special bonuses. Patrons of the podcast get a bonus episode every month that answers listener questions from people like you or from your question. If you asked a question, I answer every patron's question. You also get exclusive discounts on many of the author media courses. And at the higher levels, you may even get your book and name featured on the podcast. Speaking of which, our featured patron today is Kate Harvey, author of Believe It and Behave It, How to Restart, Reset, and Reframe Your Life. Learn how to kick your inner shame and hatred to the curb. Whatever your personal setback, Kate will help you find new opportunities and make yourself better and stronger than ever before. Kate, thank you so much for being a patron of the podcast. Thank you for helping keep the show on the air. And if you would like to learn more about how you can support novel marketing, you can do that at novelmarketing.com.
The blog version of this podcast was edited by Shauna Latelier, and the audio was edited by William Umstead. If you want to find links to anything that we talked about, including Trisha's many books and her many resources for authors, you can find those at authormedia.com forward slash 271. Thank you for listening and live long and prosper.